0: Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 150, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, is halftime high school in the fall what students needed? Bloomberg Magazine argues yes. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, our guest will show us how to take the fuzziness out of reading comprehension. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortega here, and I'm joined by our fearless friend and principal and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how's it going?
1: Everything is great. Greetings, greetings.
0: Yes. And, and what's the latest? How is the prep for fall 2020 coming for you? I mean, are, are you still trying to figure a lot of things out or do you guys kind of have a plan in place?
1: Listen, we do not have a concrete plan. I think everything has to be taken day by day as we receive updates from our governor, as we receive updates from um, our Department of Education. And then, of course, from the White House. We're, I think administrators all over the nation are just trying to close out the school year, you know, the right way with the situation that we're in. Um, I've been trying to plan for the fall, but there's so much up in the air that you just really can't. And, I, you know, I find that I've been telling teachers, you know, they have a lot of questions this time of the year, especially when you have a new principal coming in. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of questions and but I really have been telling everyone hey let's just hold off let's just see what things are even going to look like because they could rapidly change literally in the next 4 weeks
0: well and I think that's if you really look back let's say we sh- we shut down approximately mid march right i think at that time the idea that we wouldn't be back in the classroom in the fall of 2020 seemed not even it wasn't even on our minds right like no. we're just going to do this for 4 weeks Maybe as much as eight weeks. And now I think we're essentially at about eight, nine weeks, depending on when you started all this. And yeah. and I think it's becoming a reality that I wouldn't say so much that there won't be school in fall of 2020, but it's probably not going to be five days a week of school. Am I wrong about that?
1: Exactly. We just don't know how many days of school. We don't know what would actually be the first day of school and how long um, or how consistent we would attend face-to-face if if we do have face-to-face instruction.
0: And and I saw a a really interesting, I would call it an opinion piece out of um, Bloomberg. In fact, it is specifically Bloomberg opinion. And it was headline, Halftime High School May Be Just What Students Need. And and if you stick with the author, there's a lot of good points here, and there's a lot of mm-hmm. you know bitter pills to swallow in the article as well. And um, we'll start with the bitter pills. It's just basically talking about you know we may not go back to this full time for high school with students, and there's a lot of bad to come out of that. I mean, the, high schools are are crucial to communities, especially in, especially in rural areas like us, with football and Friday night lights, mm-hmm. and and all just the extracurricular activities for for students altogether, and and that may be have to be tailored in some certain way because of what we're dealing with with COVID-19. But the author also goes on to make the point that the idea of a six or seven hour school day for high school it's outdated it, it, it is an outdated model and and he kind of points to college as being maybe a more correct model he says there's a lot of wasted time and that we could be doing high school a little bit more like college where
1: i agree
0: would you agree okay so he says you know maybe Absolutely. you can split the day among students where some kids are taking classes from let's just say noon to three or noon to four and they're they're really just doing what they need to do they're reporting to those classes and then they're going home and having expected to do a lot of extra work like you do in college. You have to study. You have to maybe do group work. um, You maybe have to do a lot of research. um, and, And I think there's a good point there. And I think we could see high schools go this route in the fall. Is that crazy?
1: Absolutely not. Let's think about the traditional model now where we have students who are ahead of the game with their um, credit courses and many of them, by the time they become seniors, they're able to finish their academic day at 11 or 1130 a.m. and they go on to a work study. These are students who are not necessarily in athletics or any extracurricular and or the dual credit students who are leaving the campus and heading off to your local community college. I see this expanding to Include juniors. I think that it would be a great opportunity if they offered virtual learning a lot more in the summer, and this may produce early graduation for a lot of students.
0: Uh, Are schools, you, you keep saying that, you know, there's a lot of balls in the air, there's a lot of questions unanswered. Are governments and schools reacting quickly enough? And what I mean by that is I can see let's say we get two weeks, three weeks, four weeks out uh, from the start of the school year, which may be late August or early September, depending on where you're located. And then people start to say, well, we're going to, let's just imagine the governor of Mississippi saying we have a new mandate where only 50% of your students can be in the school at a time. So figure it out. Like, shouldn't those drills be already happening right now for school districts and those plans being put in place?
1: To be honest with you, school districts are already looking at all the many scenarios that could possibly happen. Educators are not waiting on um, government or the politicians to tell us how we're going to do this. We're already looking at different scenarios. I've heard educators talking about Mississippi or even, you know, many other states could join in on the year round school model. Um, Some are saying, yeah, you know, we might only be able to do 50 percent capacity. So what would that look like Monday, Wednesday, your A group, Tuesday, Thursday, your B group? Fridays for staff development for teachers, so those off days are virtual learning for students, so that we can practice social distancing in the classroom of course we 've talked about those high school students um, having many more opportunities for the virtual learning for those you know very important uh, courses that they need for the graduation requirements. I think we are all brainstorming ideas and sharing our ideas to see what this could possibly look like we 've always had the complaint that. Non-educators are telling us and designing and putting the accountability parameters on education and not the educators. I think in this instance, this may be the one opportunity where those non-educators really want to know what we think and what we believe will work and what's best for our students.
0: You and I were talking before, and there's been this other illness that's kind of started to pop up in New York. And New York's Ahead of everybody in terms of COVID 19 um, and in the head of dealing with a lot of the challenges that are out there. And we've seen this scary thing develop. And I've seen several news organizations uh, report on it. And the best I can tell, it's called pediatric multi system inflammatory syndrome. And it's believed to be associated with COVID 19. And what's scary about it is it looks like these kids are asymptomatic. Um, Because what's happening is they're coming down later on with something that looks a little bit more like encephalitis and like a brain issue Um, and has these unusual symptoms that aren't the typical COVID-19 symptoms. And then they're testing them. They have the antibodies for COVID-19, so it seems like they're infected, but they apparently were asymptomatic. But then they have this totally new type of reaction with this multi system inflammatory syndrome. Um, I think the New York governor said recently there were 73 cases of this. What would that do if if we saw this become more widespread? Because because it looks like these kids aren't coming down with it until four to six weeks after, you know, the people around them were infected. Yeah. I mean, if if that became more widespread, more than 73 cases, we're talking thousands of cases. Would that just turn any plans upside down in their head if we knew that children could be impacted by this in a severe way? I
1: think this goes back to, again, testing. Tell me why the pop-ups and the free testing that's available, you must have an appointment for um, the testing opportunity, and you have to have some symptoms to make you eligible even to, you know, to have an opportunity to test. Why aren't we testing everyone Regardless of your symptoms, so that we can have some knowledge of whether we've been exposed to it or not. And then, with that being said, we would need to have regular testing for children.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I've heard of a story in our community where um somebody at a daycare came down with um, yeah. COVID nineteen, and and from what I understand, all the people in the daycare, at least thus far, have not been tested. And it and until we get to that place where. You know, a teacher, for example, comes down with it and all of her colleagues, um, or his or her colleagues can be tested. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're not, we're not there yet. Um,
1: (laughs) My husband and I were having this conversation yesterday. Um, we saw on our local news that on tomorrow, Tuesday, here in our county, um, testing was going to be available um all day. We also saw that you must have an appointment and you have to make this appointment through a telehealth app. And so I said, you know, I want to know, do I have the antibodies? Have I been asymptomatic? I've been extremely careful, but you just don't know. And then we found out, well, if you don't have a fever, if you're you don't you're not coughing or having problems breathing you're not even a candidate for testing and that is the one concern i think is going to be the biggest for reopening and restarting schools is the opportunity to test everyone
0: right there's there's another topic i want to speak with you about in a future episode but just tell me if if you have had any plan or been pushing your your teachers your staff to do any of this but it's all about like social emotional connections social emotional learning with these students abroad i mean is this something that's been kind of on the forefront of your mind
1: it, it, it was one of the very first things we discussed when we realized we were not coming back to school. We immediately realized this is going to impact our elementary children, just slightly different from our um, secondary students. Elementary children are so used to their routine. They look forward to the, the the climate and the culture in an elementary classroom. And they're sad. They can't see their friends. They're not able to go to the park. We've got to make sure that they see our faces, that they hear our voices. That's the best reason why from the very beginning we started reading bedtime stories and recording them and posting them on our social media site so that they could continue to see um, the, the teachers faces and know that we were thinking of them and that we love them. I told the teachers, please, every single week, make sure you make phone calls, call and talk to your students. And we have access to send text messages and that's great. But this is causing us to go back to that good old telephone call and really check on people and see how they're doing. And then I, as a parent, Just got a a little whiff of how this is impacting my teenage son over the last two weeks. And so I said to myself, "Okay, let's teachers, let's talk about how we can interact more with our middle school students. And so our teachers have been holding Zoom meetings in the evening. That is not about instruction. It's not about have you done your academic packet? Are you logging in and completing your, you know, your web based instruction? Just how is it going? What do you need? you know, just really making that connection to the students. And I think it has made a positive impact on the teachers too, because let's be realistic. They miss their students.
0: I definitely want to dive more into this. Uh, maybe even on the next episode, we can, we can see if we can work that in. And because I, yeah. I, I imagine there's a lot of kids who their school life is better than their home life. And, and you probably Absolutely. know a lot of those students. And, and so yes. it's like, you know, when you say like a teacher calls, are they calling and talking to the parent? Or are they calling and talking to the students? <laughs>
1: They're talking to the parents and the students. For a lot of them, it's providing support to the parent. Are you having a, a tough time helping your child with their work? Do you have access to books? And then, hey, can I speak to Johnny? Do you mind? You can put me on speaker phone. you know, to make you comfortable. Of course, mm-hmm. at the platform we use records our phone calls anyway. So there's, you know, nothing that you have to be worried about in regard to privacy or inappropriate conversations happening. But absolutely speaking to the students, you know, if it's their birthday, call them wish some happy birthday, just anything you can do. Um, just to make them feel connected, which is another reason why I have found it so important that I ride the school buses for our meal delivery. I can wave, I can say hello, I smile, and it does so much for them.
0: So you um, had pre-recorded interview with me, um, for a different show that never actually made it to air. And we were talking about using like restorative practices in the classroom and, and I ended up shelving that interview and it was so good. So what I'm going to do is in next week's episode, I'm going to actually like clip that out. And make that our bright idea because it really is a great topic, and and it needs to be uh, in our show because it doesn't deserve just to be like you know put on a shelf and forgotten about. But I know this that type of stuff and was on a (laughs) shelf. Yeah, it never it never actually made it. It was a great interview that never made it on air. So uh, anyhow, if you want to catch that, uh, if you want to hear all about social emotional learning and restorative practices, this is this is right up your alley. And um, so definitely stay tuned for that. Are you ready for uh, this week's bright idea? I'm ready. Our guest in today's Bright idea segment is the best-selling author of the Reading Strategies book and the Writing Strategies book. Jennifer Saravallo recently released her latest book, which is titled Understanding Text and Readers, Responsive Comprehension Instruction with Leveled Text. Jennifer, welcome back to the show.
2: Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be back with you.
0: And for those that don't know, you were a guest back on episode 39, where we we took a a dive into uh, the writing strategies book. And and in fact, that's been one of our most uh, listened to episodes on the Class Dismiss podcast. Um, And I think while we were doing that interview, you must have been working on understanding text and readers, right?
2: I probably was. Yes, I probably I, I tend to juggle a couple of projects at a time. So it's probably true that, and the other thing is, um, people don't realize this, but when you're finished with a book, it's not really ready to be out in your hands, you have there's a whole production process, and the designers design the pages, and then the printer has to print it and then it ships. So it's very likely that it was uh, writing was in production while I started my next project. I right. Didn't
0: do that. And we talked about this in the last interview, you have a, an excellent uh, publisher, because they let you publish your books. Um, for those that can't see this book, it's it's in color, there's charts. This isn't just like a little black and white book. It's very extensive.
2: Heinemann is wonderful. That's my publisher. And um, the designer, Suzanne Heisler, who does the design, interior design and cover design, actually, um, for my books, is an incredible person to work with. She's just got such vision and such understanding of the content. And I think that she really uses design and color in a way that makes it easier for a reader to navigate a book and to really understand its content. So I'm, yes, I'm very, very fortunate. I know that.
0: <laughs> I know there's a lot of good buzz about the book. I actually stumbled across its release organically. I, I was on my Facebook feed. I had a, a, a classmate that I went to high school with that I really hadn't talked to in probably over a decade. And she posted a picture of your book understanding text and readers and she's like so excited to read this and I thought well I've interviewed her before and that's awesome that you know this this has traction amongst the education community that has to make you feel good
2: oh it absolutely does and did you say high school
0: yeah, it was a high school classmate who's now a teacher. Oh, high school
2: classmate. Yeah. Oh, I thought even she taught high school. What does she teach?
0: Um, you know what? I actually have to jump over to her Facebook page, so you put me on oh, the spot. Okay. I don't know exactly what she teaches, okay, but okay. but I do know she was one of the smartest people in my grade. So uh, it's great to hear that she's a teacher and she's you know and taking in your stuff and then, then putting it back out there with her students.
2: That's awesome.
0: Um, Thank so, you for sharing that. Yeah, sure. And um, so... As you wrote this book and, and you get it out there, what do you hope educators take away from reading your new book?
2: Well, there's a number of different layers to the book. Um, overall, it's a book about comprehension and trying to help teachers to make sense of something that is sometimes very hard to make sense of. Comprehension, you know, there's different uh, viewpoints out there on what it means to even understand from, you know, a Rosenblatt perspective where, comprehension is a construction by the reader of uh, melding the reader's prior knowledge and experience together with the text. And um, what that means is that different people approaching the same text will have different comprehension because they're coming to it with different backgrounds. Um, and then there's people out there saying, no, that you know what we should be teaching kids to do is to really study the text for as a text that's created by an author to try to figure out what the author said and to not bring yourself to the text. Um, And then we have, you know, the proficient reader research, and then we have um, different uh, educational theorists who talk about comprehension in different ways. And I think sometimes the classroom teacher um, is left thinking, what am I really looking for? What, what does, what does comprehension look like? What does it look like when a kid really gets it? Um, And so what I wanted to do in this book in part was to offer teachers, um historical background and research and theory. Um, but I, I get through that part pretty quickly, and I move to kind of the meat of the matter, which is um, the way that I make sense of comprehension. I organize comprehension along these different goals that I first introduced in the Reading Strategies book. So for fiction, it's plot and setting, character, vocabulary, and figurative language, and themes and ideas. And for nonfiction, main idea, key details, vocabulary, and text features. And then within those goals are skills, and then within those skills are progressions that are laid on top of levels. So what I'm trying to argue in the book is that what getting it looks like for a kid who's reading a book like Frog and Toad is going to be different than what getting it looks like for a kid who's reading because of Winn-Dixie. And if we can, as teachers, know some things about text levels and the kinds of things to expect of those levels, um, then we can know some things about what to expect of reader response. I also start off the, the book with a story about a student who Um, was sort of slipping through the cracks because the assessments that were being used to learn about her comprehension weren't really matching what she was doing every day. She was being assessed in short texts and then reading long long books and her teachers were sort of at a loss for where to go.
0: Let's drill down on that story you open up with. It's it's a student that you come across um, in the book. She's named Vanessa. Um, you were working in the Bronx district, um, and you were not the student's teacher. I guess you were there on professional development. Is that right? That's
2: right. Yeah, I was, I was a, a staff developer working it, with the teachers there.
0: Yeah, it, And you started working with her, and, and you knew kind of her story. She had been held back a few times, um, and she wasn't doing well on, I guess, the reading test for that area is that correct?
2: Yeah, she she hadn't passed the state test which is essentially a comprehension test and yet the assessments that her teachers were using were supposed to be telling the teacher whether she was able to comprehend at certain levels of text. So, it was sort of this mismatch between her the measure of comprehension on a grade level comprehension test and the measure of comprehension on a different level comprehension test.
0: And so I guess your hypothesis was before you really even went deep into this was, you know, she she can read these short excerpts, but when we give her a whole book, she's having trouble comprehending, right?
2: Yes. Yeah. And what we discovered was after asking her to read a whole book, and uh, we put these sticky notes inside the book. So along the way, she would have to stop and respond in writing to show what she was making sense of uh, questions about characters and the main events in the plot and what figurative language meant and what big ideas she was getting from the themes in in the text. And it turned out to be that it was several grade levels, many reading levels and several grade levels difference between her whole book comprehension and her short text comprehension. And the skills specifically that we noticed she needed help with were ones that had to do with sequencing, um, synthesizing or putting events together, and also her stamina. And with those pieces in mind, it started to make sense of why she was having a hard time on the state test, which which challenged her stamina in a way that these um, other running record assessments didn't. Um, it was independent reading, quiet reading by yourself, usually over the course of an hour and a half or two hours. The texts were longer than what she was being asked to read. So yeah, I, I feel like the the, um, the different assessment helped us to see different variables And those different variables helped us to pinpoint specific skills and strategies to work on with her that really helped make a difference.
0: And so you you sent out, I guess, assessments in a larger scale, right? To kind of see, is this just an issue with Vanessa or is this everywhere?
2: Yeah, we started by um, repeating it at that school. So we had other kids in third grade and fourth grade and fifth grade. And we really were focused on kids reading between levels J and W. J was the first level where kids were being uh, asked to read excerpts of whole text rather than whole texts for the comprehension assessment. So level J, if you're not familiar, um, the Fountas of Pinnell leveling system is an alphabetic leveling system, which goes from A to Z. Level J correlates to... um, Lev, uh, text that you might know, like the Little Bear series or the Poppleton series, um, all the way up to level W, which is um, um, like a sixth grade level chapter book, like Freak the Mighty, for example, or uh, Catherine Applegate's Home of the Brave. So we really focused on those levels where it seemed like a deeper comprehension analysis was going to help teachers to guide their teaching and also where kids uh, were. We're reading whole chapter books every day in class, and therefore we thought we should have an assessment of, of what that looks like, whether they're actually able to read and understand those level texts. So we repeated the assessment at that school for any kids that, who were, you know, between those level, reading between levels J and W. And we found on average, Vanessa was sort of an extreme outlier. Her, her short text assessment um, placed her as being able to comprehend level R text, the whole book assessment, level M text. So that's quite a difference. Most kids in the class in the school were more like a two level discrepancy with the short text assessment showing that they could comprehend a couple of levels higher than what they could comprehend in a whole book. And then I did a year long pilot study where I sent out books across the whole country and i tried to pick very different locations with very different populations so one of the one of the districts that piloted it was Great Neck, Long Island, which is a a very wealthy uh, district. And then we did work in uh, Southern California with kids who mostly spoke English as a second language. We did uh, a school in Utah, It was like kind of everywhere, right? Right. So schools that had a more of like a guided reading approach to literacy, schools that had more of a textbook approach, schools that did, you know, independent reading and reading workshop. And so what we found on average was that kids were uh, a couple of the kind of remarkable findings that yes, a couple Levels lower in the chapter books seemed to be a, a right fit than, um, than what they were, you know, play where they were placing on shorter text assessments. And then also we found, I asked the kids at the end of the assessment, how do you think you did? Was this book just right for you? And overwhelmingly, kids would say the book was just right because I knew the words. We saw that over and over and over again. The kids, yeah, the book was just right. There weren't any words I didn't know, or it wasn't hard for me to read the words. And I started to realize that probably. For a lot of kids, even, the idea of what it means to read a book and really being able to read the book is, can I read the words or not? And what would it look like to sort of unpack for kids what comprehension looks like Mm -hmm. and explain to them, you know, if you're in a book like this, this, this book, the author crafted really complicated characters who have flaws and who have strengths and who change across the course of the novel. And so if you're really understanding this book, you would understand these characters like people who have Their traits and bad traits and who change. Let's see if we're we're looking at that. Let's see if we're paying attention to that and how. um, You know, I'm I'm, maybe this is also just my own bias, but I'm the kind of person where I I don't find it fun to read something. I'm only kind of getting. I really want to understand it. I read slow enough that I can understand it. I reread if I don't get it. Um, And so I wanted to make sure kids had that experience too, that they really feel what it feels like to really understand. And you know, Vanessa was uh, an example of a student who just really didn't know what she didn't know. Uh, she came to me at the end of the year and she goes, Hey, Miss Jenna, I, I get what you mean now by make a movie in your mind. Like you, I can actually see it now. It's, I could see it in my mind, like a movie. Yeah. And that, that's broke a good tip. My heart, right? right. It broke my heart that she didn't know that until this point. And, you know, um, so anyway, yeah. So that's kind of, uh, kind of what we found. And uh, kind of one of the things I hope that this book does is helps open teachers eyes to, um, really what it can look like when kids are understanding at these various levels of text. And then maybe they'll use these student samples in the book with kids so to show kids what what it could look like or the kinds of gives them tips of the kinds of things to be looking for in the books that they're reading.
0: Now, now Vanessa's story does have a happy ending. Um, so um, those who grab the book and kind of see how that all plays out. But um, one thing you do in this book that... Would really grab me as an educator is the fact that you say that this book can help an educator identify if a student is, you put in quotes, getting it, understanding, comprehending the book, um, even if the educator is not familiar with the book that the student is reading. And so I got to ask you, how can you do that?
2: Yeah, I think one of the things um, that happens sometimes with comprehension assessment is that um, the the book that the students are reading is is a book that the teacher has read him or herself, and the teacher sometimes asks questions looking for a specific answer. But one of the things I try to argue in the book is that there's not necessarily a one right answer to any of these comprehension questions, but rather there are a variety of, of, of right answers that follow a certain type. So uh, the example I gave you earlier, with the if we know that the character in a book is complicated, then what we're looking for to the question, tell me about your character, is a student who's able to name positive and negative traits. And the traits that are most salient for them, one reader might see different traits than another based on your own experiences, based on people you know in your life, based on your vocabulary, Um, and that more than one answer could be correct. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is to offer teachers um, sort of qualities of response so that they can look at a student's response through that lens and identify if, they're, if, they could, if they need more support. I'll give you another example. Um, if we know, for example, that a, a plot in a level R text is likely to have flashback, then if a child's reading a level R text and we ask them to retell, if they're only telling us uh, in sequence, we can know that they might be missing something.
0: And, and attacks. you you kind of structure the book as a story, but you also do a lot of charts and kind of quick, like a teacher can flip open to a certain section of this book and take away from some of the charts that you have. And if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, and I'm looking at the book, like you were talking about the, um, the what was the term you put on the uh, actual levels with the uh, using the alphabet level J and so forth?
2: That's the Fountas and Pinnell text-level gradient. That's the official term of that leveling system. And there's a lot of leveling systems out there, but that's the one I like the best. So, so that's so what you, I use.
0: you break that out, basically, J, all the way through. I don't know if you go down to W or not, but you break that out, and then you'll say, you know, J, here's some example books. This is kind of the categories uh, that the students will be reading. But you tell the teachers, in very short, in, in a few words, what the look for this, that the students have accomplished, Correct.
2: Exactly. And I do that for I'm giving a lot of fiction examples, but I also have it for nonfiction. So in in nonfiction texts, I think we need to be looking not just at short passage nonfiction like articles, but also at whole books, as a As an author of whole book nonfiction myself, I will tell you, I have ideas that I'm hoping to get across across the whole book and that also you can dip in and find facts. But I I hope that people read the whole thing. Um, But it's a different task, I think, to read a whole continuous nonfiction book that has multiple sections or chapters and to read, um, uh, you know, a, a short article. Uh, there's there's sort of different mind work. So the uh, same thing with the fiction. I offer a progression of skills for understanding main idea, a progression of skills for identifying key details and being able to compare and contrast information. And the look for is change as the text levels and the complexity within those levels change. So at the point when a nonfiction book is likely to have multiple main ideas or complexity with the ideas, I call that out for teachers so that they know to look for that in kids' response too.
0: And it looks like you show students' work as well, like their actual handwritten work in the book. And then you kind of do a breakdown of what the student's writing. Why is it important for you to show it in that form?
2: You know, I think that there's a lot of um, bulleted lists of expectations for kids. Like, I I just think about a lot of the standards documents I've seen, whether it's the Common Core Standards or the the Texas uh, Tex, I think you say, Teeks standards, right? Different states have their own versions now of, of, of standards, and there's a lot of, you know, by the end of the year, students must be able to bullet point, bullet point, put and there's never examples of what that looks like. And so one of the things I wanted to be able to do in this book was to show, yes, an actual kid handwriting, this is a real kid wrote this, um, here is what it looks like, um, and here's how it sounds. And then with call-outs from me to notice, you know, notice that she's using three character traits, or notice that he's talking about... Um, in explaining the vocabulary word, not just giving a definition, but he's giving an explanation because he's pulling information from the text features and the photograph to give more information. So I, I really wanted to not just say it and tell it, but I wanted to show it too.
0: you kind of, you know, open up the book with the, the, the thought that comprehension is fluid and text level reading isn't a perfect science. And why is it important to get that out up front?
2: Well, yeah. So there's this, um, this two page spread that you might've come upon, which is a sort of historical highlights of leveling in in, in the United States. And I I Mm -hmm. provided that in there because one of the things that's happened um, with good intentions of trying to help kids be in books that they could be successful with and read well, is that leveling has become, um, very common. It's, it's hard to even find a school that doesn't use some form of leveling. Some, some schools use Lexile, some schools use qualitative leveling system, like the Foundation and Pinnell levels that I that I prefer. Um, and one of the things that's happened with the um, consistent use of leveling and leveled text in schools is that people have become very uh, focused and kind of rigid with the use of levels. So uh, for example, they might administer one assessment that's on a leveled text and from that one assessment um, you know tell a student you can only read this level text or this is your level. And what I'm trying to do in the beginning of the book is to show that yes, it's more fluid <laughs> than that with an example from Vanessa, but lots of other examples where a student who is highly motivated might be able to read a text that's much harder or a student who, Um, doesn't have a lot of prior knowledge about a particular topic, might need an easier nonfiction text than the level that they typically read. Or when it's a long text, it's a different story than a short text. So um, what I'm trying to do is to show people that, Yes, levels can be a guide. They can help us to know, look-fors. They can help us to predict some things about text that maybe we haven't even read oursel- ourselves, but, but using them in the rigid way where we're, we're fixing kids to just one level at one time is really a misunderstanding of how texts are leveled, and it's a misunderstanding of how a reader interacts with the text.
0: Yeah. And I guess, you know, the goal for the book for a teacher, maybe, you know, to how to identify comprehension and, and some of the tricks and things we've talked about, but really the ultimate goal for the book is probably to to make a student a lifelong reader, to not discourage them. Is that correct?
2: Oh, yeah, sure. That's important. Yeah. I probably should have said that first. But I think, yes, all of it, like I said, if you are not comprehending, then what fun is reading? And I think a lot of disengagement with reading Is rooted in a lack of understanding. Um, So if kids are not understanding, and if we can make it easier for them to understand, make it clearer what understanding looks like, give them strategies to understand, absolutely, (laughs) reading becomes more joyful, kids become more engaged, kids choose to do it, even when they're not told to do it. And they become lifelong readers because of that.
0: I was reading through some reviews on Amazon, and one jumped out at me um, that somebody wrote about your book. And they said comprehension can feel like such an elusive, slippery goal. Jennifer Saravala's new book erases all the fuzziness. What's even more important is that now I can erase the fuzziness for students too. Um, so oh, I, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that I think that really kind of you know summarizes what what you're going for here. So um, you know, keep up the great work. It, it's a really uh, fascinating book, and I think before we even started recording, I was asking you like. Do you put this together by yourself? Because there is you you back up a lot of your your research or a lot of what you write with research, and you also have so many charts and examples. Uh, so, uh, but you were saying you do this all on your own, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, I have a wonderful team at Heinemann. I've got an editor who checks over my work and I've got the designers that I talked about and there's a marketing team. So I I definitely have help along the way of, of the process of making a book, but all the writing I do myself and I'm very fortunate to be able to focus on reading and writing my, my, you know, I do literacy all day. I read about it. I read blogs, I read research, I read articles, I attend conferences. And so I'm just constantly immersed in it. So, um, so I guess that makes the writing about it a little bit easier.
0: Again, the uh, title is Understanding Text and Readers. Thank you again, Jennifer. We really appreciate your time. And if anybody wants Thank to track you. you down, what's a good place? I know you've got a huge following on Twitter. Is that kind of like where you like to hang out?
2: So yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at Jay Saravallo. I've got a website, jennifersaravalo.com. Um, Heinemann's actually started a Jennifer Saravalo site. That's a little bit separate from the other pages. And that's at heinemann.com slash saravalo. All these you have to know how to spell my line, which you could probably find even with mistakes on Google. Um, and uh, yeah, I need to get on Instagram. I'm being told by younger teachers, um, but I'm not, I'm not there yet. And there's also a Facebook group, the Reading and Writing Strategies Facebook group that has something like 54,000 members now of amazing educators who share. And I pop in there a lot and I answer questions. And um, this summer, this past summer, I did a writing strategies uh, camp, summer camp. So I came on live every day for 25 days and taught strategies for my writing strategies book. So that's all archived there too. So it's a great resource.
0: Well, thanks so much again for your time and best of luck.
2: Thank you so much for interviewing me. It was great talking to you as always.
0: That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at com or tweet us at classdismiss.